What's up, guys? Coach Jack here. Welcome to Operation Grip Box podcast, teaching you to live at high performance. This podcast is sponsored by Grit Box, delivering ultimate human performance to you in a convenient monthly box. That's exciting. That's good. And 10% of all revenue goes to help inner city athletes perform and live at high performance. Starting with my Castlemont guys. Appreciate you. What's up, guys? Jack here. Super excited to bring Tom Shea to you on the Operation Grit Box podcast today. Human performance specialist, athlete, teacher, coach, entrepreneur, 23 years in naval special warfare. Uh, The man absolutely brings it. And I usually spend 15, 20 minutes getting to know guests, kind of pre-podcast prep before we start recording uh, guys that I haven't spoken with before. And when I was doing that with Tom, he just started dropping wisdom out the gate. So I just started recording. So this podcast is gonna start with Mr. Shea going mid-sentence and I learned a ton. And I know you will as well. Definitely check out his book, Unbreakable. Amazing book, amazing story. And he's also got some really good stuff if you're a business in terms of being a business consultant to businesses where he comes in and teaches his unbreakable principles. Or if you're just an individual listening to this, Mr. Shea has an amazing online course. I am a huge advocate of online courses and online learning. And this man's is off the chain. So without further hesitation, Tom Shea. And I'm really excited for you guys. Let's check it out. Peace of all because they're not people that you bring home to mom. Everybody might think that from a distance. Although some of them have PhDs in nuclear physics of all weird things. And some of them are, had been business people before and some of them are right out of high school from a beat up background. And they come looking for something that's missing in their life. And the first thing we do is take away their why. And it's disturbing. That's another reason why it's the mass attrition rate in SEAL training is because immediately, if you're wise, what is structuring you to get to SEAL training, it's crushed in the first moment because it makes no sense anymore. You're getting your ass beat and you're expected to perform higher every single day or you get punished and your why won't sustain that. So what actually sustains it critically, like the first order of importance, is knowing who you are. If you don't know who you are, the, most things are impossible to accomplish. And that, that's what I do now is make sure that's critically clear. And then when you're in that training, things are moving so fast. How do you get the time to, to figure out who you are? Or is it kind of as you go, as you conquer each small evolution yeah i can break it down simply or do we want to wait or are you recording now you know that you just started rolling there so good i just started recording so we're we're in the game yeah so sorry if i broke up no 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 no. this is this is good i would have to tell a story so it's easier to hear i grew up i think living the american dream not having anything given to me from my parents who were, you know, Irish and German, not that you have to be Irish and German to have a great life, but the work ethic was instilled by, hey, Tom, you can do whatever you want to do. You just got to go earn it. And that blessing of a young kid 
growing up in that open environment where, hey, if you want something, just go do it. So I, I, when I was 10, I had a trap line behind my house catching mink and muskrat and fox and raccoon when I was 10. And I have my three kids and I couldn't imagine letting them go do that, even though I did it. But the, the grace of having parents that allow you to explore things that you want to explore, I think is rare. And then, you know, growing up as a you know, through high school, I thought I was a good football player, but got recruited to play football in college, played a couple years in college, really great track athlete, actually liked running more than I did football and did that as well in, in college. And then the big thing happened. I got, I, I flunked out of West Point. And what that, what I was looking for, what happened to me there is I was groping ineffectively with why I was there. And that always causes people to get screwed up beyond repair. When they are groping with, a, even though you could say well, your why wasn't strong enough, I just don't think it's ever strong enough to overcome adversity, the why question. So what I found is if you attack it differently, so, you know, then, I mean, we could ask more questions, but then I got out with, went back home with my tail between my legs and my dad simply said, okay, you get worse. Now, what do you want to do? And I was dumbfounded. He, go, he goes, hey, people fail. You just got to build yourself back up again. You got to find something that you want to do that distinguishes you. So it asked the big question of who I was. And I had some other great mentors at the time and they asked the same question. You got to find out who you are and then go do that stuff. And I had always wanted to be a SEAL, even though I thought it was impossible. And hell, I didn't even know how to swim, but I always wanted to do that. And both my dad and my mentor at the time said, if you don't do that, you'll have wasted your life, even if you fail at it. So that was a big exploration in who, and you know, as the, your young football players are trying to discover themselves, if they ever come to the realization that they are a football player, get out of their way. Then they function well. Like, why well, go to practice when it's, you know, 110 degrees and, you know, the team that you know, you're going to play that week is 10 and 0 and you're 0 and 10. Your why ain't going to make practice better. It won't. But, hey, I'm a football player and there's always a way to win. It makes a huge difference. You say it's more, much more important than who you are rather than why you're doing that. Wouldn't you say those are connected? If I know who I am, then... They are. Yes, they are connected, but one, I think there's a linear progression to it. Who is first? So, you know, I just use this. So I, what I found out was that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. That was the distinction of my who I wanted to be. And then you have to commit to it, which asks or answers the question of what, where, and when. So if you know who you are, you have to have a goal. And the goal is to become a SEAL which is what? I think what is the second order of importance? What do I want to be? If I'm a tough guy, however you want to distinguish the who, who conversation, if I want to live that type of life, I have to distinguish what that life will be. So what's the life? Be a Navy SEAL. And so you have to go out and commit to signing up for something or put money down on it or you know sign up for football. The fact that somebody committed to being on your football team is probably more important than why they committed. They're committed now. So in order of precedence, not to make it too academic, but who, what, where, and when are the first four orders of, of precedence that are so vital to success or have a goal. 
a distinguishable, measurable goal in your life that you're trying to attain. That, I think, is the rarest commodity in the human being, is somebody out there that is driven to have a measurable life. And then when you're surrounded by people who either don't or are not outwardly sharing this same ambition of having a queer goal and this is who I want to be and this is what I want to be, what would you say you can do to really, especially let's talk about the guy that cast mine here. So these guys are younger, right? So we're talking 15, 16, 17. What can they do to really be able to stand on their two feet where and make the proclamation of, of this is who I want to be when they will be mocked, criticized for, for coming out and saying that because it's just not the norm in the neighborhood? Wow, that's a lot of questions that get exposed there. Okay. Uh, you know, My apologies. The naysayers is a maturing process. It's hard to discuss that without you know going back to your original question. Even say that the football team itself, your running backs, that's who they are. If that's the deal, they're there to be running backs. They're also there to stay academically relevant so they can stay on the team. So all running backs have to get, and you have to probably dictate it, your GPA matters or you can't be a football player. Once a coach does that, it sets a precedent for the team and everybody will rise to it. They know they don't have to, then they won't. So it's given them clear, definitive boundary operate on the team. And then what I, you know, I spent a lot of time in football. The great coaches have measurable goals that week for every player and the team as a whole. Just playing the best you can is not a measurable goal. It'll kill a team. But a running back trying to get 100 yards, he can bite into that piece of meat. Playing well, he can't. Now, I'm not suggesting that that doesn't happen where you are, but I just know in, in teaching you know men to to be high performers, if you give them something that they can actually bite into, a measurable goal, they will always rise to it or do their best to rise to it. But that's how they get you know evaluated. And winning is a measurement and losing is a measurement. Never go into a game to lose, obviously. And then from your time, could you give an example of when you were with the SEAL teams of guys have different roles on missions yeah. of what would be measurable goals? Yeah, and you had mentioned that you'd asked the question, something that spiked your interest in listening to the book. The one mission that you were talking about, we were going after Bo Bergdahl. It was later during our operational time over in Afghanistan, probably month five or so. Everybody has a specific position within the platoon, very clear and definitive. Like my point man had a clear, definitive role to play with measurements. He had to produce a route from insert to target and then from target to extract. That was his primary role. He was held accountable to that with redundant backup ways to solve it. I had breachers that their primary mission was to produce breaching solutions, either mechanical where you hammer a door open or an explosive breach. They were held responsible to that, both in the training and the planning and the execution of every mission. And my role as a leader was to tactically organize everybody else's abilities into a solution that would work day, night, in the middle of combat, 
when you're tired. And so that was one of my roles as the platoon chief. And, you know, my platoon leader had a specific role. So everybody had a specific role. The measurement of that, like even snipers had a specific role. There are two roles as a sniper. One is to position the sniper position in a place that could best support what we are trying to accomplish. And to be accurate when shooting, which is the, how do you measure accuracy, is, I hate to say it, a dead Taliban. And a lot of people don't like to talk openly about it, but that's the deal. That's what you're there to like, do. Like your your uh, quarterback, he's measured whether he wants to or not on how many passes were caught and how many were dropped. Accuracy. And you can teach him then to be accurate if he knows that's how he's measured. Running backs, how many yards they gain, how many yards per carry. That's their measurement of success. How tough they are and how big they are it matters not to the football team is that they get their job done like you know your tackles measured defensive tackles and ends are major measured in tackles your linebackers measured in tackles whether they're big or small makes no difference they get the job done they stay if they don't whether they're the biggest guy on the team or the meanest makes no difference but that's uh, that's a way that i measured it and then I'm kind of going back forth a little bit here, but you started with you saying that a number of the SEALs, these guys definitely aren't kind of cookie cutter in terms of how they grew up and, you know, doing what they were told and honor roll students. And I know for myself personally, I had a, a ton of trouble growing up in high school and, and all that. And going back to these Casamont guys, where a lot of these guys just have high energy and it gets it gets pointed in not so positive direction because that's what they see what happened the seals initially go into their training to get to the point where all of their energy and all of that ambition that was kind of sideways before they got there got to a point where you as a platoon chief leader could say okay these are our measurable goals for this mission and all their energy and dedication is now dedicated toward this positive goal for them to go after uh, it starts before I even touch them as a, as a platoon chief. It starts in training. And what I mean by that is you've got to go back to the BUDS training, which is basic underwater demolition seal training, which is the weeding out of the people who cannot have two things. One is the key, I, here's the deal. I wish I could say it differently, but here's the deal. If you can't make a promise and keep it, you will not make it through SEAL training. And the first promise that you make to everybody there and to yourself is to make it through training. It seems easy, but 90% of the people don't make it through training. It is the worst attrition rate ever, and we've been trying to solve that problem. But the only thing that the SEAL community is interested in is you make a promise and you see it through. Doesn't matter what happens in the middle. Find a way to keep solving problems if you could transfer that to a football team. But so what happens in training is the training is designed to to break people so that the only thing that they have left at the end of training is when they promise something they're going to see it through and every single day in training is a measurement like a test do this so you inadvertently make a promise every day you step foot into the compound to complete the day you may or may not know what that day is going to evolve into but you promise to stick it through until close of business and it's overwhelming the things that you're asked to do how many people want to shake, raise their hand to go in and drown themselves? 
well, I don't want to do that, but I promise to make it through. So you go and do the thing that they're telling you to do. They tie your hands behind your back, they tie your feet together, and they throw you in a pool, and they tell you what to do while you're trying not to drown. So in all of that, what you keep gaining is the great people, no matter their background, just find a way to keep solving the problems. And as a trainer, and I was an instructor from 2001 to 2004, as a SEAL instructor, with the only you, ba you basically do this. You give them a task and you don't listen to them. Ah, I can't do that. I'm not interested. Do it anyway. My foot hurts. Don't care. It sounds cold, but you have to talk people out of all their thousand reasons to fail. You know, my parents don't support me. I don't care. They're not here. Get back in the water. My wife or my girlfriend is cheating on me. Don't care. Get back in the water. Do these 150 push-ups. My shoulder hurts. Either quit or... And so what people that get that level of commitment from an instructor or a coach, they just know the best thing that they can do is keep showing up and keep performing and not letting their background noise dictate what they're going to do because the noises will kill them. And then with your, you have 13 lessons that are kind of your core principles on being unbreakable. And you mentioned lesson number one of honoring your, your word. And why is, you talk about how you, these lessons are linear. Why is that the foundational number one? I just, so what I know in writing the book, I originally wrote the book to my kids without any idea that anybody in the world would read it. So it was written specifically for them without any intent to be a book. And then I, cause I didn't know if I was gonna come back. So every lesson was written individually and sent back home. And the next lesson was written and sent back home. The reason why it stopped at 13 is because combat was over and then I returned home. So I wrote the book not knowing if I was gonna come home and I wanted the kids to learn very valuable things in case I wasn't there to help. And the reason why lesson one I think is critical and I'll take a sidebar. Uh, to date, there have been 900 people try to accomplish lesson one. It's simple. It's three weeks, the first week, right after you get out of bed and right before you go to bed, do 10 push-ups, 10 sit-ups, and 10 squats, and begin to write down every reason that would come up to stop you from doing it. So those two things, do the thing and write down the reasons. And then week two is 20, 20, and 20. Week three is 30, 30, and 30. Out of 900 plus people, 71 people have been able to do it. It ain't hard, but it's difficult for human beings to honor their word because their reasons seem more relevant. Like my, I forgot, I'm tired, I was drunk, I didn't have time, my wife doesn't support it, I look crazy, this is stupid, all those reasons are the reasons that people fail in life. So it's to uncover the reason and do this, do it anyway. And in football, it's I always like football I always as a reference, and I think it's funny that you're a coach. In football, you always have to imagine the team that you're gonna go up against is better. If you think you're better, you're always gonna make a mistake. You won't put the right mental attitude into it. How many people wanna constantly go into a battle where they, they could lose if they're not on at their utmost. Very few people. And when you're down 21 to nothing in the fourth quarter, it only takes four plays or three plays to break even. Actually, no, six plays. A hundred yard and then a field goal, a hundred yard and a field goal, and a hundred yard and a field goal. 
I hate to break it down to the simplicity of that is you can always find a way to make it work, but people break down mentally where the blocking doesn't happen like it could because, hey, we're down 21, who cares? This is stupid, why try anymore? That's why I think college football is the greatest you know, football to watch is because this stuff can turn in five seconds. You can be down and you can come back. Pros is a little harder because everybody's skill set is a little better. But that's a mental problem, never a physical problem. And the mental problem is I'm going to play every play like it counts. It has to in combat, not to jump around, but every single step counts to a SEAL. And they've just learned that everything counts. And it's a more of a mindset. So anyway, sorry to, to divert off of your question. No, no, you're right on there. And what you started to go in there a little bit in terms of the analogy of football being down 21 nothing, and then forget it, is you started to talk a little bit about internal dialogue, which is a huge theme in your work and your teaching. Could you just talk a little bit about what is internal dialogue and why is it so important? I guess I would break it down simply to this. It's how you internally process or give meaning to the barriers that you face. 21 down, 21 to zero in the fourth quarter is a significant barrier. It's a physical and a mental barrier. Mentally, it's Everest. Physically, like I said, it's, it could be six plays or maybe even five. So the mental thing of it is how you process your experience of your life is the key to being successful. How you mentally give meaning to your experiences. And it doesn't seem anybody's providing teaching in that. And the only way to provide teaching into it is to give people difficult physical and emotional problems to solve and begin to listen to how they process it. You know, like ask a veteran, like if you were to ask a SEAL what the difference is being outnumbered 100 to 1 and one-on-one, -on -one, it's no difference to him. He's gonna keep doing everything like it matters because internally, he's not letting his environment dictate how he's processing things because the human can only really process one thing. You can only process one simple thing at a time. Everything you can do more. I've just not seen it to be true. So if you teach people to process one simple thing, like a block or the first you know, move, first series of moves on a play, like a sweep play or, or a six dive or a power six or whatever. It's the first few moves, not how many cuts he's gonna make to get a touchdown. It's when he grabs the ball, how he's processing that. He's only gotta grab the ball and he's gotta evade, make a move to evade one person, not the whole team. But usually when people break it or don't break it down simply in simple processing, I use the analogy a lot is, you know, if you've ever gone hunting quail, the whole covey of 20 birds jump into the air all at the same time. If you shoot 20, you get zero. If you shoot one, you get one and you may have time to shoot another one. Most people don't see one bird, they see 20. And teaching people to process simple, attainable things is I think the most difficult thing to do because you get overwhelmed. And I'll tell the story so it may make more sense, even to your football team, if they ever listen, is we were outnumbered 36 to nine. We were overrun by the Taliban. It didn't make any difference to us because you can only fight the game that you're fighting, which to me is just one 
do what they were supposed to do. And when I asked them after, uh, other than we just about died and everybody was emotionally spent, I'm like, hey, was that any different than training? They're like, no, not at all. All I had to do is squeeze the trigger one time. And we found a way to continue to solve what we were faced with, as opposed to getting overwhelmed and not being able to take any simple action. I know that, that may be a little more basic than can be comprehended by a lot of people, but. You said 2001 and 2005 when you were training SEALs. What did you do, what does the organization do to teach its operators, its players, how to eat the elephant one bite at a time. Is it like, is this how you're communicated to me? Is this something that's verbally spoken consistently? Yeah, it's, I, they don't use the word internal dialogue. I just chose that phrase separately. So how in training it's taught and absorbed is you work one evolution at a time or one hour at a time or one step at a time. And it culminates in Hell Week, which is, it's hell. It starts on Sunday night. It concludes some time on Friday, whenever everybody, all the instructors get tired of doing it. And you only get an hour and a half to two hours of sleep the entire time. And the only way that you survive it is to process putting one foot in front of the other in the face of being overwhelmed and you're freezing cold and you know the deal with the Pacific Ocean, it's not warm and you're in it all the time and you start out freezing. You spend three hours in the water until you can't even close your fingers. And then you're asked to run four miles. And if you don't get it in 30 minutes, you're gone. If And what you do as an instructor is you overwhelm them and then you say, here's the deal, quit or, or stay. And the people who can't deal with one thing at a time, the people who can process one simple thing, survive. I don't know if that makes any sense to question was. It sure does. And then how do you reprogram your internal dialogue? I, I actually keep it simple. I remind myself who I am and what my goals are. And, and then I make a very detailed step-by-step -step plan that gets thrown out very quickly, but I at least start out with a plan. And I keep reminding myself of the simple things, a process, one thing that you can do. I think it's very relevant because I, I started doing ultra marathon running and it's too overwhelming to look at it because it's an elephant. And you're like, there's no way I can run 100 miles. I can run one, I can run another one. And most of the pro ultra runners don't even look at it as 100 miles. They look at it as biteable chunks. So the language behind that is, is simple. I'm a runner and I'm gonna run a mile. Or I'm a football player and my job is to catch the ball or pass the ball. Simple, 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 simple. Don't worry about the environment because the environment is never helpful and keep processing who you are and what you're gonna do. Still training, that's the deal. You're here to be a SEAL, so keep putting one foot in front of the other. And don't listen to all the other noise that happens. I think of Joe Senna, the guy who founded Spartan Races, and he's pretty, he's known as kind of this entrepreneur who started this movement, but he was a pretty badass ultra marathon runner himself. And what he talked about, he didn't, of course, didn't have this training, but it was just get to the next telephone pole was his, was his motto always. Just, I don't know how I'm gonna go 60 more miles, but I can for sure get to the next telephone pole and then the one after that. And that's the same in, you know, in football or in life, you know, those, the kids that you're coaching are processing a lot of things that they're probably not sharing. Yes. In life or they watch their buddy get shot. It gets overwhelming and you know, a lot of bad choices get made out of that. And you asked the question that I didn't get to answer. Why did the, the guys 
get drawn to SEAL training is what they find. And the reason why they, one of the reasons why and why they stay is because everybody there has clarity and it's rare. So everybody in the SEAL community, even though it's a, a disaggregate bunch of criminals, it becomes homogenous where everything is clear and on the table. You can talk about everything and everybody has very significant problems and you, you face it all together and nothing is hidden. So it becomes a way of life that is, you don't let anybody else into it. So the reason why SEALs don't have a lot of friends is because they don't let anybody else in because it's very rare to have that experience of a unique oneness with people gained through adversity. And it makes people stay for 20 to 30 years in very harsh environments because they feel like they can be themselves. And then you mentioned about one of your guys on your deployment in 2009 and that when you selected him, his name's not coming to chance, please remind me when you recognize who I'm talking about, but you selected him because you recognized a lot of the qualities. Salty. Salty, yes, because of his willpower, his fearlessness, and his hatred for, yeah, for leadership, yes. So my question is, there's a couple guys on our team who are very similar to that, is how can I get them dialed in to be on board with our mission because they're not the hardest workers, but they can hit. So if any of the other harder workers are like, hey, why don't you try a little harder? They're just like, yeah, whatever, come on. You know, I'll crack you when we get on the field. I'm not worried about it. So in terms of how do you, as a leader, how do you get that guy all in to, because obviously this the skill set is something that you want in football and in combat. How do you get them to, to be all in and still let them, you know, be their authentic selves where, you know, they're not going to be towing the line all the time? Yeah, so let me paint the salty picture. Probably six foot tall. I know he had some fat on him, but you couldn't see it anywhere. Huge neck, able to squat probably 600 bench 500 massive guy and had an interesting background where was from a rough environment where the solution was always fists gets in a fight didn't know who he was fighting happened to be two other seals gets a detached retina and then he was put into a holding i call it a holding tank waiting to heal and the problem with that holding pattern is it disallows any connectivity so nobody cares about you you're not in training anymore. You can't do training. And you start getting this. He began to get disillusioned as most people would. So I went to interview him and I saw immediately that he was comfortable with confrontation, which is a great thing to have in a, in, as a SEAL somebody that's very comfortable with you know going to guns or fighting and so what i know to be true because i was the same way is the way to lead somebody like that is to give them clear handrails like left and round right boundaries and i said here's the deal and i'm going to hold this as long as you're you know in my platoon there will not be any more drinking related fights or you're gone or i'm taking your trident from so now he knew if he's going to play if he still wanted to be a seal if he wanted to remain a seal he could not have alcohol and fighting be on the same planet and then i said here's the deal there's no complaining either you cannot complain and be on in this platoon i don't want to hear it i want solutions not complaints and you're going to do everything you're taught you're told to do and that was that was the deal so he knew if he wanted to play, those are the three parameters in which he, he had to play. And he was the, one of the best SEALs I've ever met, ever. 
And then maybe this is just a story that I'm saying in my internal dialogue, but when I think about playing that out with a couple of the guys I mentioned, because of their personality, they're so used to having teachers or guardians or whoever it is coming down on them that I see them turning, shutting off very quickly if I tried to, again, just my internal dialogue and story that I'm saying in my head, but shutting off in terms of, oh, okay, you don't agree with who I am and you don't believe what I'm doing anyway, then yeah, forget it, you know, forget you as well. So I guess my overall context, what I'm trying to work through is how can I showcase my belief in these guys but at the same time, instilling this level of discipline and these boundaries and handrails that are very, very, very mission critical to running a successful program and helping them leave, get out of there with the lives that we want them to have. I'm trying not to come across as advice, put myself into that position. Here's what I heard there, commitment to them. You gotta come from that commitment. I'm committed to you as a individual, primarily, secondarily, I'm committed to football. And, you know, teachers threaten and then never hold up to it. So nothing, I didn't character assassinate Salty and I didn't threaten him. I gave him something that I was gonna hold him to. I'm not saying that that would be this exact same thing with your the people that you mentioned. I believed in them and I knew that, you know, I was one of the lucky seals that every time I went on deployment, I saw combat. So I knew we were gonna see it. And I knew that they had to feel like they were a part of the solution. And for them to be a part of the solution, I gave, I tasked them constantly. This is what I expect today. And how they look at it like this, I always ask them this, show me what you're gonna do. Don't talk about it. Go show me. Like, you know, today we're working on, you know, room clearance. Don't talk about it. No excuses. Practice it. Show me that you got it. And then we can move on to the next critical skill. Show me that you can block. Show me that you can tackle. Show me that you can be a part of the, you know, the, the team, the guys left or right of you. How would you help them? And then ask them to show you. It's hard to give advice. No, that's fantastic. So let's, since we were talking about Salty, reading your book, which I highly recommend to everyone listening, it felt like you had this amazing, illustrious career that led to that combat deployment in Southern Afghanistan in 2009. And it felt like that for you was kind of a culmination of all of this incredibly arduous training that you had done and all your deployments. I read somewhere that said something, you had 2,700 hours of combat and it led to this kind of moment where everything you had learned had come to this deployment and you needed all those skills. You needed every single evolution. And I was wondering if you could just go a little bit deeper and to kind of share what that deployment was like. And then while doing that at the same time, writing these lessons to your kids and not knowing whether or not you'd be able to have dialogue with them after they read them on whether or not you were coming home. So I'd love for you to just kind of share if I'm accurate, you felt like this was kind of the culmination of your career and your experience. And then if you could kind of just talk a little bit more about that deployment in 2009 and how intense it really was. I wouldn't use the word illustrious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'll try to capture it more succinctly. At that point, so I went into that deployment when I was 40, and which is not young. It's like being a 40-year-old pro player. You're not at your prime. I was at my tactical prime, but not my physical prime. I was probably at my emotional prime, not my physical. So, And my skill sets were probably at their prime. So it's a weird way to, to talk about 
the beginning of that deployment. So we were called into southern Afghanistan. We were the first SEAL unit to go back because you know Iraq had captured more of the SEAL attention and that was dying down and Afghanistan blew up again so they called they had a task out you know a feeler for how many SEALs can come over so I ended up taking half of my platoon I got the other half three months into it but I originally went into Afghanistan with half of my platoon which was about nine guys and we knew that we were going into combat and SEALs don't knock doors and they don't do nation building. That's what other military units do. That's not what we do. So as we are preparing for that, it became very clear in training that we needed to find ways to overcome our mistakes or our weak points. And I had several and everybody in platoon had several. And so we spent a lot of time dealing with our strengths and weaknesses in training and come to find out we had a lot of things that we could do really well and a couple things we couldn't do well at all. So we got tasked to go in Afghanistan. We show up in April. Three days later, we're in our first firefight. And that, like every week and a half, we were in heavy sustained combat, which is like 21 or zero to 21. We were always outgunned, always not outmatched, but we were always overwhelmed. The odds were never stacked in our favor, but we found a way to play to our strengths. And the third mission that we were on ended up being a five-day mission where we ran out of food, water, and ammo every single day. So every single day we were down 21 points. And then we'd start the next day down 21 points. And had we not gone through Hell Week together, we would not have made it. Meaning, had we not done equal adversity where we'd survive very you know, crappy conditions, then we would have all given up. Because it, simp- it was too hard to even contemplate at nine o'clock in the morning that you had to make it till dark. So we just started playing every hour. We're just gonna fight the next hour. We're gonna fight for another hour. We're gonna fight for another hour. Hey, chief, I'm out of water. Okay, let me go get the water for you. So all I did, even though I did some shooting, all I did was satisfy everybody's needs. Hey, chief, come up and talk to me. I'm like, why? They're like, I'm falling asleep. Just come up and talk to me. Okay, you don't think that's what happens in combat. That's how people do well. And you mentioned the give a shit about each other. That's the key to it all. That's the key to great teams is not threats or yell. Seals don't yell at each other. One is I was probably scared to yell at them because they were tougher than I was. I didn't want to get in a fight with them. So I, I led by giving them what they need. And so that the third mission, massive, was the biggest drug bust in U.S. history. It was like $4 billion worth of opium. And then we just did one successful mission after the other. We never went, and here's the thing that I see it in business, is we went into every mission not sure that we were going to come out of it. And in business, everybody wants to know they're going to win before they even play. SEALs don't ever think about that. We don't anticipate you know, coming out with a victory. We just want to get into the game because once you're in the game, you're a problem solver. Unlike anybody else, I think SEALs solve problems that are, you know, most people can't even see them. So we never, obviously you play to win, we just played to play. And I, I find that to be the greatest point of success for human beings is play as if it counts every play. If you win, cool. If you don't, still play every round, every play, every hike of the ball, 
as if that's the last time you're going to play. And I wish everybody played that way. That's what I miss most about the teams is that level of every moment counts. And then do you feel that that is just in DNA for most guys that, that are there? Or why is that so rare? It's trained. I don't think genetics count that much. I don't. I've been a part of the, some of the greatest teams in the world. Genetics may count in like sprinters. It may give them an, another second. But work ethic and commitment can overcome genetics most of the time. So it, it's trained. You allow yourself to get taught and trained to deal with overwhelming situations. It certainly isn't genetics. And in terms of making everything count, why I resonate with that so much and something that I've really tried to bring into my life over the last few years is I just, it makes things, it's just really, for me personally, it's really empowering because it makes everything that I'm doing in the day really important, right? Like even in the grand scheme of things, whether it's one a particular action I'm having with my son or taking out the garbage, if I'm coming in with intensity and focus that this is important, that this is me trying to demonstrate and walk the walk of what I want to teach and who I want to be, it is important and it, it does matter. And I, if I, just, I find that really empowering. I think the youth of today, just because of the mass emotion they can have, they have at their fingertips they can hear that you know the winning and, and you know success and failure conversation they can hear it wrong outside of the the fact that everything actually does count that's a fact the other thing that gets misrepresented is failure you're gonna fail there's no way around it you're gonna lose a game, you're gonna drop a ball, you're gonna miss a tackle. That's the only time you're gonna learn is when you don't do it the way that you said you're gonna do it or something goes sideways. What most people do, however, due to this the richness of data that's coming at them is they don't allow failure to teach them anything. Like, you know, I think the 400 meter is the greatest point athleticism in the world because there's no way to do that well. It hurts. And the faster you get, the more it hurts. Yeah. And you can slow down and not have any pain, but then you're not getting faster. You ask any football player or any track athlete, if they won what they learned from it, they're not gonna remember anything. If they lose or didn't do as well as they thought they should have, ask them what happened. They're gonna have a detailed list of everything that went wrong. I missed that, I started wrong, the blocks were bad, I tripped, my brain wasn't in the right spot. Good, now we got stuff to work on. And so in SEAL training, everything is failure. Everything is pushed constantly until it breaks, because that's the only time you're gonna learn what you're capable of doing, everything. In combat, it's the only time that you can win because the instructors aren't gonna make you fail. And it's the weirdest dynamic in the world. So in SEAL training, everything breaks all the time. In combat, you're like, oh my gosh, it's over. You mean nobody's gonna artificially kill somebody, you're gonna have to drag somebody for four miles. The planes, because in training, everything goes wrong constantly. So you're used to it. And the only time that you can win is in like the, the game of life. But as long as you don't quit, there's a solution. And I wish I could articulate that better. No, that was fantastic. And then I read a Tony Robbins book back in the day, and he said, when we win, we party, and when we lose, we ponder. And it goes back to this idea of that's when you learn, that's when you, but you got, 
as you're saying, it's not just losing in itself that that brings improvement. It's recognized, taking the time to figure out why we're losing and what's the plan to work to improve that. Remedy, and don't quit. Gosh, and I'm sure as a coach, you know, when things go sideways during the game, you can see people browbeating themselves or their level of ability diminishes. Without a doubt. The environment has changed and how quickly it can change back and getting at you know, some of your team leaders to play every play like it actually matters can turn the tide of any game. And you mentioned on that, on one of your incredible missions in that last deployment of how you guys went five days without food, water, substance. And a lot of the guys on our team, they're not eating. So they're in this survival mindset and what needs to happen? What do we need to do as leaders to get them out of the survival mindset into a high performance mindset? Or is that is that linear? Is that process? Or is- so I don't think it was a survival mindset. It was simple action mindset. We weren't into cowering and just getting by, but we knew that we couldn't operate at our utmost 24 hours a day. So there is a series of off and on buttons, if you want to call it that. You're either in action or you're not. And how that can be you know, translated into you know, athleticism and business or leadership is just getting through something is a waste of time. And a two hour, hour and a half, hour and 15 minute game is not even a rounding error of the time that you'll spend in your life. Play it. It doesn't matter if you're winning, losing, doesn't matter if you're in pain. Do something effective. And you know, a block doesn't last more than two seconds. It's not like an hour long thing. You're on, you recover from it, you learn from it, you get back into it, solve it, and then try again. And the football analogy is the greatest analogy in the world. And everybody just gets bogged down. I've missed a block, I'm embarrassed, my back hurts, broke my finger, I can't make the next block. It's ridiculous. Or, you know, I'm tired. Then get out and come back in. And it's it's the weirdest dynamic. I, I love to watch it. I love to see my son try to figure it out because he's in the process of getting down when he misses something. And then what do you do as someone who has so much experience when you see that with your son are you staying out of the way or are you waiting for him to come to you so this is context this That's is something a hard question yeah so I, i'm a father of two boys as well so this is something that i have to sift through as well where you know i'm very hands-on but at the same time you know when do i back off and so when you see your son getting let's put a specific example on it the last time you saw your son getting down on the football field did it did you guys ever circle back and have a conversation and how long after was it there's a difference between coaching and parenting for sure (laughs) uh parents or dads are the dumbest people in the world And so what I, they do have to, your kids have to come to you or what I've done through the help of a couple mentors is allow the mentors as the surrogate teacher. Cause I could say something a thousand times and he's a, he's six, three, two thirty, and he could lift the house. My son, Garrett. And I'm like, Garrett, don't worry about it. His odds over. Okay. Just start. We're going to start Monday, start back at it. You'll recover. Nah, I'm not even interested anymore. I could say that till I'm blue in the face or I could say something specific like hey you need to get you know your chest needs to get stronger because you're an outside linebacker and you need to have a little more arm strength all he hears is blah 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 so what I do is one of my friends who's an ex-pro football player he'll come in and 
and say things that either I had said or another point. And Garrett takes them gems. So I, you know, my buddy and I talk, and then he talks to Garrett. So I use my buddy as a surrogate. So committed to helping. I know that at some point in time, they do listen, but they really reject parents in their face. I think teams are different. Your team listens. Since you're a dad, your kids ain't gonna listen. Thank you for that. And then I want to get your take on a specific in the now issue that we're dealing with the team is getting guys to step up and be leaders, right? I mean, end of day, we can coach them all we want, but when the season starts and they play, we're going to be on the sideline. So we had a, a meeting yesterday, and then I asked the players to step, if any player wanted to step up and say something to the team and take control, and there was silence. This uh, worries me very much because this is what happened last year. No, 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 no. I don't need to interrupt you. I think that you're taking an adult tone and not their perspective. It will be a lot easier when you ask them, how would you do this? They're like, Billy, how would you have done that? He, he may be silent, but the, let the silence be a struggle. And then some, anybody else have a point of how we, you know, make this play or this kickoff return more effective. What are, what are we missing? Coaches don't like to do that. But if you're gonna, or you just get your notional leaders into a room and you ask them how to solve a problem. That's what leadership, not your leadership is. Then they have to come forward and say, this is how I would do it. Good, let's go try that. So then they're empowered to give a point of view and see it through. Yeah, because if I ask my SEAL platoon, you know, does anybody want to take responsibility for this? They'd be like, fuck no, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> but hey, we always did after mission, you know, analysis and all right, what happened? Did this happen? Good. What's the solution to it? Well, I don't know yet, Chief. Good. Come back with a solution. And then we go solve with the way that, try to solve with the way that we, that you guys, you came up with a solution. Maybe the whole team can't function that way, but you know, your seniors that you're going to put, you know, their feet to the fire. You have the leadership meeting of what's going on. How do we solve these problems? Then they'll, right, they'll, they'll respond to that. That's great. And then to jump back real quick, because of skill and probably a tiny bit of luck, made it back from that last deployment. I was just wondering, what were you kind of thinking about when you were taking that final airplane ride home? And did you know that was your last deployment? I did not know at the time. The catharsis of coming back was, I call it brutal. Because you, you know, for me, I'd been in that hell environment for a little over six months. It's, it's sad leaving that environment because it was anything that's so intense that you're so committed to the moment that it's over, you kind of want more of it and then you can't. And so the plane ride back, we had a, they make SEALs uh, take three days off before they go home. So we actually stopped in Germany for three days and got to unwind. Send other leadership out to take, so another chief came out and took the responsibility of the safety of the platoon over. And I was just another human being on the planet so I took a lot of showers and had a lot of sushi and <laughs> <laughs> just chilled out. And that was the hardest time because I couldn't let go. And SEALs need that three-day period of time so that they don't go back and shoot their neighbor for coming in their yard. And But when I got home, it was pretty much over where I had left combat and I was ready for the, for the family environment. And seeing the kids was extremely emotional and they were emotional. And, and then I just got into the rhythm of whatever Stacy wanted me to do. And then you mentioned your wife for the first time. So I originally, I listened to your book about nine months ago, and then 
shortly thereafter, my wife and I were talking about things we could do to improve and like really stuff we could take action on to improve our relationship. And she had this idea of doing, listening to a book together before we go to bed. And uh, I immediately recommended yours because I just, the relationship that you have with your wife and how she completely supported you on who you were, what your mission was, and uh, in turn, because she did that, she got your undeniable support, and it just seemed just like an amazing partnership that you have with her. Could you speak a little bit about Stacy and kind of just what you guys have created, which it's just, I think it's really exemplary in terms of how you guys go about your business as a husband and wife. Yeah, well, uh, we both came from previous marriages that went not well, and uh, when we started to realize that we were you know, getting close to the, the you know, the on your knee question. We sat, you know, we sat across from each other and said, hey, listen, let's put it all on the table. Nothing hidden anymore, the good, the bad, you know, the weaknesses and failures that we have and keep it on the table. And uh, so we started from a very powerful position to begin a relationship, I think. And that, out of that came the clarity of being committed to the other person without getting a choice. So what I know to be true is that people are gonna do what they're gonna do. It's easier to be yes than to say no or seductively say yes and mean no. So whatever Stacy wants to do, I get behind. Doesn't mean I have to go do it with her, but I support her and what she wants to do. And she supports and gets behind what I'm gonna do. That was how we began. And so the book, Unbreakable, was originally titled Spartan wife because I wanted the kids to understand that without a strong woman, men suck. Agreed. And, but yeah, <laughs> the publisher didn't like it, and so they had a vote, and I got voted out off the title. And so what we constantly do now, Stacy and I, is we always make it clear what we're doing individually, and we openly give each other permission to go do the things that we're committed to doing individually, which makes us united. And I think it's rare. All the CEOs I train, when we get to the relationship conversation, it's the biggest jump in performance is having a committed partner. Yeah, I so agree. And it's just from firsthand experience, it's so hard for, I don't think I'm the only man to not just completely get behind my wife with whatever she's doing and you know instead of bringing in my ignorant opinion or in terms of trying to get her to do something else when i do what you're saying in terms of just being completely supportive of of what she's doing uh, it's just better the biggest way to create conflict in a relationship is try to change somebody you're crazy it ain't gonna happen it may have actually changed had you let it go but the fact that you're adamant that you don't like it causes it to stay in existence forever and i saw capstone that there are a lot of things i don't necessarily agree with but i get committed very quickly you got my support i, I don't know what the hell you're doing but you got it what do you need from me sometimes she'll go nah 
I'm not interested anymore. Okay, thank God. But I'm not going to stab or demoralize what her ambitions are, whatever they are. Not everything works out every way. Anyway, so I'd rather have somebody committed to helping than trying to change, you know, something about me or me change something about them. Like, even with my kids, like my daughter Autumn's going into her third year at West Point, and I immediately was not supportive of her going to West Point. And she looked at me, she said, Dad, you're not doing what you, you said you would do by supporting me. I go, woo, that was brutal. Okay, you got my support. And, and, she, and she's doing royally well. She's one of the top academic cadets there, and she's on the crew team, and she's one of the best athletes that I've ever seen. And I just get behind what she's doing. And it's easier for her to convey and relate and share what she's doing if you're behind it. If you don't agree with it, you don't get any conversations from them when they're gone. Congratulations on that. And then in terms of Stacy supporting you as a warrior and fully committing was just... Oh, she loved, She actually loved it. Well, yeah, yeah. That's where I want to go to. So I found that... She wants, I want to hear the stories. I want to hear it all. What do you mean? What it was like. Amazing. I want to hear about the killing. I want to hear about the good, the bad, even the facts. Like, how many bullets did you shoot? How many times did you, you know, think you were going to die? I'm like, okay, you want the full Monty, here it comes. And we would sit up for hours talking about, you know, my experience in combat. And she would you know, relay her experiences doing what she was doing. And uh, we'd go, oh, my gosh, that was two hours. <laughs> and she and you end up becoming best friends when you have that kind of relationship. And it's rare to have a marriage that's also a friendship. And then she 100% supported your mission. And my question for you is, what can men, husbands, boyfriends, whatever, what can they do? Who do they need to be to maximize the probability that their significant other will be as supportive as possible on whatever mission or wife path? The attempt earlier was to answer that question. The deal is the counter relationship there is you have to be fully committed their life uh, it makes it easier for them to fully commit to yours and then we have this spoken and unspoken agreement is that we will listen enthusiastically to the other person and sometimes you're not in that space to listen because there's other bullshit going on in your life you know like if case in point if I'm busy doing something and Stacy has something to share if she notices I'm not paying attention, she has every right to say, I won't talk anymore until you're ready to listen. As opposed to me demand, her demanding me to listen at the moment that she wants to share it. Because sometimes they never line up. So what I always get from Stacy is, I have something to share when you're ready, come over. And so I'll be like, oh fuck, I got what I'm doing here, I gotta go over there and pay attention. And sometimes it could be hours or it may just be at night before we go to bed. Hey, honey, what were you going to say this morning or you know, in the afternoon? And then I intently listen because here's the deal. I actually listen because I've lost before. So I listen through the mind that it actually matters, that what she's saying is important to her. That's like it's a life of somebody who's been in you know, combat where they've about died. Their ability to pay attention is keen. And then how do you, do you do the same thing with, with Stacy in terms of, I got something to share with you, or you just start talking and she's, she has the awareness, or how do you do it on uh, She I'm not ready. <laughs> okay. Like, you know, it's important, honey. It's like yeah. life-changing now, later. And so she usually catches me being uh, more forceful at it. She's like the center pen. Uh, I'm not as att attentive to the little innuendos as she is. 
Yes, I think that's a, a valuable skill that, that most women hold for sure. Okay, so you exited deployment in 2009, and then you stayed with the Navy a few more years, is that correct? Yeah, I, uh, after the deployment, I took over our sniper course for two years and was in charge of training all the new snipers. And then during that period of time, uh, Stacy and I were began the conversation of when is the right time to get out? Do I want to go back to the teams and do another six years? And it just wasn't as appetizing to go back as it was to try something harder, which was get out and start another life. I always liked trying things hard. It just seemed like more monotony to me to go back and revisit the team environment again, because I'd already done everything that I'd set out to do and it just wasn't as electric as it had been in the beginning. And I was never going to pick up a gun again. So I, the allure of being a SEAL without a gun and dealing with the uh, the problems that SEALs have as an administrator wasn't... You would become the guy that Salty hate. Yeah. <laughs> I hated too. So you hate be the person I hated. So. And then uh, after a sniper course, I went and I was in charge of research and development for about 18 months. And then I retired and got out and not knowing what was gonna happen next without a job, where we were gonna live, and we started looking and searching, and it got really urgent rather quickly of uh, gotta deliver value and get paid for it. And I'm like, okay, back to work. And then real quick on the, the sniper course, I have background in adult education, and one of the books that I've kind of stuck connected with me kind of my throughout my boy's childhood, I've kind of used as my number one resource as a dad, is a, is a book by another former SEAL, a gentleman by the name of Eric Davis. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I know him. Okay. So what he mentioned in there is this master training specialist certification. And for some reason, I found that to be very uh, appealing to me. And I was wondering if you could just kind of, what is that? And is there anything close to that outside of the Navy that's something that I could go after in terms of, uh, for some reason, that's something that's really stood out to me. I want that. Outside the Navy, so master training specialist is just a designation within the training command of your ability to take a topic and create a curriculum and program around delivering measurable results around a topic, swimming. So they give you a topic called swimming and then you have to create a curriculum and execute on that to become a master training specialist. And you have to have grading criteria, you have to break it down to its you know, nuts and bolts and then you have to put it back together and then you have to show other people how to break it down and put it back together. Outside, I don't know. I don't know what is available training-wise that level because training fell apart in the business sector in 2004 with the downturn of the market. So there's not a lot of training departments organizationally, which leaves a lot of work for us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have a graduate degree in adult education. That's a large part of what that was. Awesome. Okay. Then can you speak a little bit about what is the the, the value that you're delivering now? What's the day-to-day -day look like for Mr. Tom Shea? I spend the majority of my time. So we have, I guess, three products or business models that we run. One is the online 13 lessons taken from the book but taken to a like a self-guided process where you you know with a little inject from us and my partners put yourself through the lessons and apply them in your life so that's the online training but I spend a majority of my time training individual clients to master themselves in five areas physical intellectual 
wealth, relationship, and spiritual. The process has eight different iterations to it. it. Usually takes about a year to get through, and you will two and a half X each of those five areas. So if you're an athlete, you're gonna two and a half X your physical performance, and you're gonna learn how to make money as an athlete, and you're gonna learn how to learn, and you're gonna find out how to measure relationships, which is the most odd thing for people to realize, and you're gonna grow by two and a half X spiritually. And uh, each iteration takes about eight hours, and we meet, like I said, eight times for eight hours each, and it's not easy. 71 people have been able to go through the training to date. And then organizationally, there's three, four of us SEALs where we go into business. We call the program Embedded Leadership, where we go into businesses and help leadership solve the people problem in a business. Did not I take too long to describe the process and detail of that. Sure. And then real quick, I think we got it touched on in terms of one of the unbreakable lessons is you challenge people to go on a 24-hour walk. And I wish I hadn't put that in there, I tell you. So well, I've done 20 of them now. With, <laughs> we do two, three, maybe four a year. I'm going to start just doing two. Okay. Because they are tough on me each time, learning lesson for me. So the idea is the human being needs to understand 24-hour deal. Most people have never done anything for 24 hours. And there's a process of what I call unraveling that happens in 24 hours. It goes from excitement. And all you have to do, we're, we're just going to walk. And 24 hours, everything in your life is going to come up. And the other SEALs and I help your experience of how to deal with that crap that comes up in your life that prevents you from moving forward. And yeah, so we're going to do another one here in October in Greenville. And uh, it's a wonderful experience. That does it, doesn't anticipate what's going to happen. And then between two and four in the morning, life happens. <laughs> I think it's so powerful. And um, I just think it's so authentic from what I know about you and from this conversation today and your background, just because it's not the super intense physical, which it is, I think unraveling is a great way to put it. And it's just, you will get in touch with your internal dialogue with that. And it's like, you will get a thousand different reasons to quit. But then it's like, why are all these reasons coming if, if all I need to do is just walk? I have food, I have water. All I'm doing is walking. Why are the, why am I having these thousand different things come up? Because you got to learn to beat them. That's the deal. And I wish it, so between two and four in the morning is when it all happens. It just takes 16 hours to get there. So what time does it start? There are people that quit. I never can understand that, but I understand quitting. But And they always quit right when the sun goes down. Like, uh, you've already done 12 hours. You can do the other 12. But the only reason they quit are the reasons are more valuable than their ability to honor their word. And I've seen, I've heard some great doozy reasons. <laughs> that somehow realized themselves after 12 hours. and But I've seen, I had a 16-year-old girl that I would have quit had I been facing what she was facing. She had blisters on the bottom of her feet because she just had not done anything. And that was at the 12-hour mark. And she was in a cocoon for the next 12 hours. And I'm like, ooh, that's impressive. And I've had a guy with Parkinson's that was 75 completed. He was the best one. He goes, this is not tough. Parkinson's is tough. This is easy. And I've had everybody in between. A lot of uh, ultra marathon runners come to do it simply because it's a mental thing not a physical thing mm -hmm. and it allows them to practice their mental aspect not just the running speed aspect they have they struggle with it like ah, oh, dang this is harder than running i'm like told you 
<laughs> and it's really challenging for you just because you're you're doing it with with everyone that signs up you're gonna hit a barrier and I've hit 20 unique barriers each one it's a new one given whatever you're processing at the moment you know either a physical sick or you're emotionally something's going on in your life that you're processing and it's diminishing your performance and so the deal is to be able to articulate it and help solve it for people while you're doing the 24-hour walk as well oh yeah yeah so that's the leadership side of it is somebody has to guide it yeah with little guidance people won't make it through so i've had a lot of people like the first few it was always a learning lesson the first few a lot of quitters because I, I wasn't guiding it so they would unravel and silence doesn't solve anything for people and they would just leave and so now we've gotten better at how to guide the process of overcoming that internal struggle and uh actually a lot of people haven't walked 50 miles which is an impressive feat it is an impressive feat all right let's uh i want to wrap this up mr Mr. Shea, I really appreciate your time with, with some rapid fire questions here at the end. Okay. Now you're a huge fan of one of, one of your lessons is of finding the right coaches, finding the right mentors. If one of us is lucky enough to be find masters in, in whatever it is that we're going after. So if you could have three masters dead or alive, help you right now achieve top fight performance, who would they be? Uh, one would be uh, Genghis Khan. Clearly had an, um, a sense of mastery, even though it was brutal. And I'd love to have his insight. Uh, another, uh, oddly, taking a hundred degree turn is uh, Ronald Reagan. How he shifted his mindset from left to right, and then created solutions for the United States that were rare. I'd love to have his insight as a mentor. And I, a lot of men won't understand what I'm saying is I think Stacy is a great mentor for me being a man. I have those three people. Who is the most interesting person you have ever met in your life? A guy named Pat Tomlinson, who uh, I grew up with him. He was a SEAL before it was called SEALs. He was in World War II when he was 17 on great battles like Iwo Jima and, and all those Pacific battles before he was even 19. And uh, he was so interesting because what he had gone through in his life was amazing to me. He'd been captured and had his feet skinned and ran away from his captors. And he never would use the word quit. It was like he hated the word. And his mentality was never, ever, ever give up, ever. And I, it was just amazing what his mind was capable of doing. That's incredible. And to be to talk about being an exemplar of that concept of never giving up, to have your feet skinned, to be able to run away. What are you better at today than you were a year ago? What personal limits are you currently stretching? Physical again. And is that in the ultra world? Yeah, it's injury. So all my all the wasted youth injuries okay. are coming back at 50. So I'm learning how to adapt an injured body to performance. Like it's easy to, to do well when nothing hurts. Yeah. When it hurts, it's a whole different mind game. So I sprint competitively. I had a, a glute injury that happened to me at the start of this summer. So what I've been trying to navigate is what's the training in terms of still being able to feel like I'm pushing myself and getting better while at the same time getting this thing to heal. So I think that's a very complicated thing that I'm still definitely navigating. Yeah, it's, it's much easier if you're healthy just to get after it, right? The saying is easy to be a seal on a sunny day, but there's not a lot of sun. That's the deal. <laughs> yeah. One of the quotes that really took, stood out to me today, what you said is your environment 
environment never helps you. Never. So even if never. it is that sunny day. Anybody says the environment is never helpful, ever. People are never supportive. They're not. Everybody like, uh, they're not. People are not supportive. Like, you know, even your teammates may look at you not be supportive. Hey, it's going to be a great football game, then it rains. Or something happens. So the environment is never, ever helpful. Internally is the battle. And then I think of the, the nice sunny day. And then let's say you have a super supportive team and you have this beautiful sunny day. What comes to mind when I hear you say that is that might get us to lose focus a little bit or take our, our foot off the accelerator a little bit because the environment is so, we think it's so optimal. It's optimal for the other team too. <laughs> They're not going to lose sight, but they may be on top. But if it's raining and you have mental clarity, the other team's not going to have mental clarity. Beautiful. And then last question, this doesn't have to be rapid. What is one piece of advice you would have for someone who comes from absolutely nothing yet has high ambitions to leave an impact on this world? It's better to come from nothing than come from something. Because if you got nothing to lose, you're hungry. The deal is you got to stick with it. Come from nothing and stick with it until you get the thing that you set out to get, even if it takes 30 years. And don't ever anticipate that it's going to happen the first hundred times. Powerful. From nothing, I think, is easier. And what is the best way for people to reach out to you, Mr. Shea? I know you have a podcast. If you want to give us what that is, and then what are you on social media? Have you yeah, seen some of your stuff on YouTube? Uh, yeah, I have a website, Tom Shea, T H O M S H E A dot com. And our podcast is called Unbreakable Podcast. And we do one a week. And we're on Facebook, either at Tom Shea or Unbreakable. And uh, we respond very quickly, either me or Stacy or my SEAL partners respond very quickly to, you know, emails or texts or whatever comes across. It's beautiful. And I highly recommend the book Unbreakable. I'll put the link in Amazon below. And Tom Shea, I appreciate you. Thank you, sir.